And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Welcome to the Hollywood Perspectives Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com. And on the other line is money long like Jarecki sideburns. It's Andy Greenwald. I'm so happy you've led with the sideburns. Jarecki. Jarecki. I mean, that's a good name. It has like a nice hard consonant sound. How are, do we have, is somebody out there doing the Jarecki, the Jarecki movie with Mark Maron as Jarecki yet? Not yet, but the day is young. We're we're talking here. This is Monday. We're only hours removed yeah. from the, the 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 exciting, the groundbreaking, the earth shattering, the Twitter affecting yeah. finale, yeah, of HBO series The Jinx, which clearly we're going to talk about. Today. Nothing was the same. <laughs> Although according to you, everything stayed the same. No, I so was. We're gonna, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about talk the Jinx. Jinx. Yeah, man. We're going to talk uh, new music. We're going to talk Kendrick Lamar a little bit. Word. I feel like we should say at the top of the show what we're not going to talk. We're not going to talk about the slap this week. Just events conspired to get in the way of, of, of slap. So we'll do double slap talk next week. We're so- going to do double slap, both cheeks next week. <laughs> Sorry, and next Connie. week's Aisha. Yeah. So it's going to be real. But okay. So, so we'll do Connie assume- and Aisha next week. I'll talk for 12 minutes straight about the slap. I assume we've lost 50% of our listening audience right now, so now we can just get back to what matters most. Uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this, the Jinx. Uh, we had not chatted about this before. <clears throat> Did not chat. Uh, and then yesterday, I feel like the momentum over the last couple of weeks about it, I mean, everybody had been kind of like, this is such a compelling show. And there had been some chatter about like the Errol Morrissey recreations of the crimes that they had been discussing, right. these Robert Durst, alleged Robert Durst murders. And, uh, and then, man... It jumped up a notch. It really escalated. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Bob killed a guy <laughs> and two women. That's not funny. Here's the problem. <laughs> this isn't funny, right? I'm not allowed to laugh I at know. this. This I is know. the well, issue with, with a lot of these, like, when we kind of memeify these, like, true crime shows, and then you realize you're laughing about real things, man. I feel like it's worth saying something right at the top, and especially in response to two bits of criticism. One what you just said, which is probably true. I mean, we we're talking about three people who lost their lives very likely because of this right. insane sociopath. Right. The other criticism that is all over the place today is a lot about, oh, was the timeline futzed with, oh, were they withholding information to keep them from the cops? What is Andrew Jarecki's moral responsibility as a crusader for justice? Both those arguments have validity. Mm-hmm. I am less interested in both of them than I am in the fact that the jinx was a very well-made entertainment. Yeah. Like, it... It was a TV show, and I watched it as a TV show, I enjoyed it as a TV show, and I appreciated it as an act of constructed dramatic narrative. Right. And one thing that kind of makes me a little nuts about the way documentaries are often treated, and I think primarily by people who don't watch them often, I guess like myself in this case, but is that <laughs> is that there's this assumption that they're pure. That was good, because when true. you first started that point, I was like, <laughs> defender of the documentary as an art form. And there's one, noted doc, one thing missing. Noted alcoholic Andy Greenwald. <laughs> if there's one thing missing from my Wikipedia page, it's definitely my deep, deep love <laughs> of the nonfiction narrative medium. No, I just feel like all all documentaries are fictionalized yes. at some level they all have a point of view they all are constructed to with an artistic end or you know in this case with some sort of prosecutorial end yeah and i feel like that kind of gets lost often and i think that rather than nitpick today on monday when the court case is you know just beginning what Jarecki did or didn't do let's just talk about what one thing we know he did do which make which was make a very compelling six-hour television show. i will tell you one thing that he did do yeah he explored all the settings on his electric shaver yeah. Now, <clears throat> there is some fine detail work going around right here. Well, viewers of the Coast to Coast podcast can see I, I'm, yeah. I'm pointing to the area, the the, jow, the cheek area, the cheekal area. You're, point, you're pointing to the moneymaker. <laughs> yeah, right. For talking heads like ourselves, this is really where it matters. And so when the truth bombs drop. What do you think this, like, that setting was called? Is that is that called like, is that the calligraphy setting? Oh, what, on the on the shaver? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's called like leading the witness or something. There's something about it that is like trustworthy, yes. you know, it was, it was sculpted and considered, like, but let me, let, let me put it this way. I was relieved to know that there was a massive time 
jump right. between the first interviews where he was wearing that where where Durst was wearing that nice uh, Heather and, Gray and Jarecki's got the salmon shirt on, and the and what we saw last night, which was very much the finale, was a lot of like behind the scenes stuff. Yes, towards the very last moment, yes. I was really relieved because honestly, I was watching Jarecki those first four episodes, and I'm like, this was a choice. Like he knew he was going to be on TV, right? And right. like that's cool. A lot of people have had scroll nut zippers faces in their lives, you know? Like, I don't judge. But it was a bold move. It was a bold move. And weirdly, more people on that show had goatees than out on the planet Earth that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Would yeah. you agree with that? I guess so, yeah. Cody, he was rocking a goatee. Cody. Okay, Let, <laughs> another, one other thing. Here's another reason why this show was good and why maybe documentaries are pretty good as someone who has literally never seen any of them. The faces of people who are actually police officers yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. They're, they're not very much like Dominic West. <laughs> they are not like Dominic West. And they have so much more personality, both in the way that they look and in the way that they yeah, are. Yeah, Cody was like... <laughs> Cody was an intense dude. The dude, the Westchester dude, who's, again, people watching us on YouTube will understand the, the depth and breadth I'm giving to my skull region. But also, the, the, the Manhattan cop. The sort of wiry guy who was retired, yeah, you know, yeah. who was the one who was initially investigating Bob Durst's wife's death 30 years ago, he he is like a Richard Price character come to life. You know, he's a he, – I actually, I'm going to compare him to a fictional cop. He kind of had like a Richard Belzer thing going yeah, on. Yeah, a little bit. And he's a, he, I think he's the cop who early on is basically like as a homicide detective in New York City, you see things that can never be unseen. Civilians will never understand what I see. And my wife is sitting there being like, what's on his necklace? Because his shirt was open more than more than mine was. And I'm like – pretty sure that says super dad i thought it said like boss of all bosses <laughs> so the just the, the face and the characters i mean this was a very fascinating world yeah it was a, a rich tapestry great ensemble i mean like if you're talking about it but, in terms of an, un an entertainment can i just jump in and actually say another positive thing about this before um, you bring down the hammer yeah no so when i first moved to new york in 2000 one of the great great parts about living there um and this is this is going to sound unnecessarily nostalgic but hear me out was um the new york specific media that was there oh i know um, where you're going so i, I loved every whatever day it was of the week i used to really make time for the new village voice like we would get really excited when the village voice would get delivered to mondo kim's where i worked on st mark's and the, they would bring in a bunch of voices and we would all like kind of devour it to see what the lead review was and see who was coming to play shows and stuff like that and um that was back, you know, like, you know, you'd, you'd get up every morning and you'd wake up with New York One and like on the way to the to the subway, I would always get a poster or a daily news and just kind of like read about yep. these insane characters that like it, it, it's 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 a t it's a time that's kind of gone now from my life. And I'm sure that other people still live it, but it's it was just seeing those um those headlines, those New York Post splashy tabloid headlines. Oh, yeah. There, there's like a, a New York Magazine, I think, article written by Nick Pileggi, who wrote, went on to write Goodfellas and all those. You know, it, you, you see these names and you're just like, man, what a, what a town. <laughs> I totally agree. And for me, I mean, you and I both lived in New York when Hold on a second, Bob Durst. What if you just pitched over the side? You were saying... <laughs> Hey, man. Hey, you totally agree. Uh, I totally agree with you. I, you and I both lived in New York during this time when Bob Durst was on trial yeah. in Texas for dismembering his neighbor. Yeah. And I have to say I wasn't – I had no actual knowledge what any of this was because his name was like Brooke Astor or these other names that were just always on the back page. Yeah, where they would get something – like the tabloids would get something in their craw for like six to eight weeks and it would just be a story about it every other day and like they would find their – they would find their fall guy and you could just see yeah. it from two weeks out that this guy was going down, you know, like. Yeah. And, and so I think that that leads to one of the potential criticisms of the, criticisms of the jinx, which is I wasn't sure if people there were people who were clearly obsessed with these cases mm -hmm. and have been following it for many years. There are also people who knew all of this stuff, who read those papers past the, the garish headlines and were following these cases and there wasn't didn't seem to be that much new evidence so it was the most compelling thing about the first half of the jinx the first three episodes was just durst himself yeah who's yeah. just like a character you've almost never seen on tv before with these outlandish blinks and these seemingly obvious tells and this weird like sociopathic remove from the details of these these violent acts that occurred around him yeah it's so fascinating uh, too to watch um one of the things that i thought was really interesting about the show it was sort of tangential to it was all of Kathy Durst's friends who became sort of amateur detectives over yeah. the course of the case and 
how that sort of mirrored by the end of the show how many people online were amateur detectives or at least fact-checking the Jarecki's and Smirling's work and that kind of called back to the way people were with Serial and how that had yeah. sort of awoken a sort of collective <clears throat> detective you know inside of a lot of people and um, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I'm sure that it, it's just been given like a larger stage because of, of Reddit and Twitter and Facebook and the ability to share links and for to have a community of people to talk about this stuff with. Do you think that it gives – do you think that there's – it creates like a remove or a, a, a distance? Is it a distancing thing when we're, we're experiencing these things, these, these truly heinous crimes through these, these artifacts of popular culture? Do you think it does divorce us from the reality of the situation, or do you think that that would happen anyway if you're just looking at these totally like eye-grabbing New York Post headlines? I think it's a good question, and I think it's a hard one to answer. I think what makes this case kind of unique is that these cases were essentially cold. Yeah. I mean, he was tried for one of them yeah. and then acquitted. Um, nobody other than amateur detectives were trying to put it together. You know, he, he was, a, he was an a freak show. Yeah. And an oddity, exactly. But so Jarecki had a camera, and he was himself an amateur detective. And did you see the movie, fictional movie he made about this called uh, Ugly Yes, Things? I did. How was that? Not great. Yeah. Even though it had the gauze? Yeah, I think that it was. It just had. It's interesting to know that he obviously, by the end of the jinx, comes to us such a. You know the the pose he has in the initial few episodes, and he cops to this where he's like, "It's not that I thought he was innocent, but I thought he might not be guilty." Or he says something along those lines, and I definitely think that he's charmed by, by Durst for well, for some of that time. Well, here's another thing that didn't really get much play which is that one of the more compelling things about Bob Durst is that he is the oldest son of the kind of titanic character that yeah. doesn't seem to exist anymore. So yeah. his father, Shel I think Sheldon Durst? Or yeah, when they Seymour, were rattling Seymour, off Seymour the, Durst. the Durst real estate holdings in Manhattan, it's, it's almost incomprehensible that someone could own they, that much they, of Manhattan. That much of Manhattan. Yeah. So his father you know, was this titan of the city, mm -hmm. and Bob Durst was the oldest child and had a horrific childhood with his distant, successful father and a mother who committed suicide basically in front of him. His younger brother, who was born without the obligations or the pressure, uh, seemingly, you know, went off to Stanford, describes himself as have, having had a hippie phase. A Berkeley hippie, yeah. Takes over the company, Berkeley, right, takes over the company and has all the success and Bob Durst is ignored. Now, that's on the record that's in the jinx. What isn't covered in the jinx is that Andrew Jarecki <laughs> is the second son of a multimillionaire also, a major figure in New York philanthropy, um, Henry Jarecki. And, his and Andrew's older brother followed in his father's footsteps in making money in financial markets. Okay. And Andrew is sort of the second son who could Is that how Andrew gets into the children's hospital benefit where he confronts Douglas? I don't know, but I, that's a question worth asking. Okay. And it's also interesting, you know, again, it, it's not ascribing any motive, but it that's another interesting wrinkle to the story. Yeah, why, if anything, I Andrew think Drake that his understanding of the upper crust of New York and right. money, money in New York and the way that people in New York with that kind of money interact with and use the media as a tool is fascinating. It makes the, it jumps this show up from just like an investigation of a cold case that you could watch on on any sort of any any true crime show. That's right. And what was truly spectacular about it, I think, was the ending, which was totally unlike anything I think we've seen on TV before. And I think it's worth talking about it just not in the context of justice, mm -hmm. not in the context of did this cause the LAPD to, to have him arrested on Saturday, which he was, and now he's being extradited to California. Right. Um, but let's just talk about how one thing that we can all agree on with TV in 2015 is that we are way too focused on sticking the landing. We are way too focused on getting the ending right mm -hmm. as opposed to the journey, which is what most TV shows are about. And here we are with a show that had an absolutely dynamite, unique, probably not repeatable ending. I mean – You wouldn't believe it if it was the, if it was a fictional television show. You wouldn't believe it. And as many people have said um, on Twitter and other places, you know, this is the ending that people who became obsessed with Serial kind of wanted, yes. probably. Right. It's like right? Adnan I mean, talking to Sarah and saying, like, I did it. Yeah. Well, guess what? Yeah, people want resolution. And now, again, I, I paid as much attention to Serial as I do to documentaries in general. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, that's an example. It's another example of what we're talking about, where people are, are a little bit too fixated on resolution as opposed to the exploration and the journey. That said... At the end of the finale last night, and again, 
props to everyone involved for making this six episodes because that was enough. Yeah. Like eight episodes would have been too many. Um, you know, he sits him down for the second interview and they, and they, they, they hit him with the, the handwriting. And for me, the more incredible thing wasn't almost wasn't what he, what happens in the bathroom afterwards. It's when he just starts, starts uncontrollably burping. Yeah. As if like he's, he's, he's sort of exorcising these, these lies or whatever. Yeah. Like it is such a human and terrifying moment. And again, you said people, we wouldn't believe things if they were fiction. This was a human tell that like, would be too much if it was an actor's choice. Yeah, Rich Joswiak on Gawker has written a couple of times about sort of the physical manifestations of Durst's lies. That, you know, right. A couple of really interesting posts and, um, you know, the twitches and the eye blinking and stuff like that. And, it, it, you know, I, it's it, it was a really, it was very, it's, it's incredible to see these kinds of like, when all streams converge into a river and you see, you know, people complaining about the New York Times spoiling the jinx. You know, it's yeah. like, the, you know, Robert Durst spoiled a couple of things on his own. So I think that, like, <laughs> I understand that, that that's, like, frustrating if you're like, well, I didn't know how the jinx ended. But it's the jinx is not lost. It's something that's chronicling yes. something that's real. You know, you can't. Oh, although, to be fair, this goes back to the first point we had. Like, I didn't feel in any way upset that the LAPD spoiled my enjoyment of the finale by arresting him. Yeah. You know, right. but I, I would have been upset. If I had gotten the push notification that apparently people on the West Coast did three hours before they had a chance to see the show that said literally in Jinx finale, Durst says, I killed them all. So that's the equivalent. I knew the show was ending. I knew real life was a thing. But that's that's ruining a narrative choice. I mean, yeah. that was again, they, they ended the show with no editorializing past that audio that they had. That they was interesting. That's the choice to go to black after that. That was a very interesting choice. I, I like that. A little, I, I little David really Chasian, engaging. you know, like in, yes. in a way it was like, it, it, it was, a, there's no title card. There's no Jarecki one-on-one afterwards. It was just, it kind of let Durst walk the plank himself and then backed away from the splash, you know? Exactly. And I think that was a rare and very good example of just restraint. Yeah. And, and it wasn't something I would have expected for the 40 minutes leading up to it in last night's episode, which focused almost solely on Jarecki and his team. Yeah. Like riding around in cars, leaving voicemails, talking about how nervous they were. It was almost it was too navel gazy, honestly, I mean, because they had run out of story and then they had become the story. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I So we'll be interested to see how this plays out. We'll have to revisit it once some stuff when some more some some more more shoes drop. Well, the shoes are dropping out near you, right? So I assume you're just going to be a court reporter. Since, yeah, since I'll just you're coming be out to LA out. for a trial. Yeah, um, I think the more interesting thing—I mean, the, the Durst thing is what it is. Like, if the if the people, no, but the people related to his victims can find closure in this, if yeah. they can finally prosecute him, he's a 70, 71 year old man. Like, the closure would be good. His own in terms of paying for his crimes, I have no idea what what's to come. What's more interesting to me going forward would be looking at how TV responds to this, because I don't think the jinx was necessarily a ratings blockbuster certainly not and it certainly didn't have the the sort of vibe or zeitgeisty whatever yeah that but isn't this exactly shows... what hbo lines up for in the morning is this kind of conversation starter well now it, that's what i mean it didn't have it through four episodes it seems to have gotten it like crazy in the last two right and i, I but I you've always said you that they could care less about the ratings as long as people are talking about it people they want to be talked about yeah, yeah. and they want to bat and now that they're switching to a you know a more direct subscription model mm-hmm. they want a backlog of content um, but I think I told you also that when I did that um, executives panel in L.A. and end of the year with the heads of networks, they were all just talking about serial and how they could get that same conversation going mm-hmm. about TV shows. And so the concern is what's next, because nothing could be worse than a rash of like Cowboy Justice series. There's an interesting – the, the way that serial and Jinx are different is interesting because Jinx obviously sort of – the conversation around the jinx peaked at the end and people were, it was almost yes. like this delivery system for this resolution. Right. Whereas with serial, the, the hype and the conversation around serial peaked somewhere in the middle. And then it was a conversation about like, can they, can they stick the landing? Can they fulfill everybody's ex- expectations about it? And, you know, I thought they did a, a fine job producing a very compelling radio documentary, but it didn't, finish the job you know what i mean like it ended with he's gonna get a you know an appeal from and and so i the idea that you can just replicate this and frankly it's a little bit disturbing that you would be looking for yes criminal cases with which to replicate 
you know, starting a conversation. You know, these are people's lives. I I, I enjoyed I enjoyed it. I, I I tend to personally prefer crime fiction to true crime, but me too. That's only because the things that I'm interested interested in about crime are very rarely the truth. I you know I, and that's what you that was interesting to hear over and over again over the last few episodes of the Jinx and that was a largely part of the conversation about serial is what really happened who's not telling the truth all these other things like I'm I'm a little bit more curious about some of the other things that happen in and around crimes than I am about what's the truth I totally agree with you and I, and I and I find my I found myself more drawn in by the aspects of the Jinx that were ultimately sort of tangential to the story like yeah. The first episode that sort of laid out Durst's history in, 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 in detail that is not disputed mm-hmm. about his mother, about his brother. The early I days of his really relationship with Kathy and like the, yes. the Vermont health food store and like this, this the idea feeling that maybe like there was got, another way. There was a point where like there was like a sliding doors point where he could have gone this yes. other way and been just like a granola nut up in Vermont and let, been left alone. And he gets drawn back yes. into this cobweb of deceit and money and stuff. And, and maybe or maybe and, he wasn't like, you know, you never... Now you have to question every every bit of his account of their story, you know. But what you're talking about, those are the building blocks to like a great character, mm-hmm. and that's not what the Jinx was because it's a real person who probably killed three people. And so, that, but but I, I I'm glad you're saying that because that speaks to what I think we share in terms of I wanted I wanted good stories. Yeah, I want good stories first and foremost. Yeah. and when it gets derailed by not only reality and the truth but this expectation of the truth and i think it sort of sinks well and it's also interesting because in a in a novel you would never not get deb to talk you know you would never not get you wanted more deb i wanted more douglas i want deb and i mean like all these people like this in this suggestion that douglas and seymour might have known about some version of the truth of robert for quite some time and basically while not suppressing it distance themselves from it you know uh, which is sort of suggested in in episode five that there's the you know he's got yeah. these recreations of these boardroom meetings of of what looks like the Durst family you know basically just, just being colluding like, yeah, yeah and and I that's that's I thought that was interesting in a movie that would be very interesting in a quote unquote documentary there's a lot of responsibility like was there a collusion meeting between totally the, right. the patriarch and the the younger brother there to to like protect the company via protecting Robert I don't know. You know? Yeah, I I totally agree. And there's this part of me that wants the good story that is sympathetic to this idea of a fundamental tragedy. Yeah. That because of that, what it's an American him, tragedy that you could do this thing that's like look at the fall of this family. But, right, and look at his need for help and for control and and to get attention and all these things that he did. But as what you're building to is exactly right. At the end of it, no, these are real cases. There's real crimes. Yeah. And there's a real matter of justice at the end of it. And that is a that's a messiness that I don't think. I don't think people, and I'm including myself in this, people who, especially who, especially people like myself who watch narrative TV for a living, I don't think we're well equipped to have this conversation. And yet I think people seem insistent on, are, are insisting on having it today online. And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame. Yeah. Um, you said something a couple minutes ago that I thought we would tease out a little bit because I know that you wrote a little bit, you got something about community that went up today and then you're going to be writing about Bloodline later this week. This, this uh, week, yeah. Um, new Netflix show with Kyle Chandler and Ben Mendelsohn. And you were talking a little bit about how you're glad it ended at six episodes. The Jinx ended at six episodes. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, knowing what you have, knowing how long it's going to take to tell your story and whether or not, you know, I've been thinking about this because of so much stuff now has been revived or there's hints of a reunion. One of our favorite shows of the last, probably in the duration of this podcast, Happy Endings, there's been rumors that Happy Endings might come back in some yep. capacity. Uh, people are always banging on about a Party Down reunion. Veronica Mars came back. All these shows that were fan favorites. Twin Peaks. Yeah. Twin Peaks is coming back for better or for worse. And you were talking to me a little bit before the podcast about this idea of like when enough is enough and how you were kind of glad that Friday Night Lights didn't turn uh-huh. into an eight or nine season ER style behemoth where it- you did changeover of the high school every couple of seasons and... Well, it's not just that. It was that, and we're talking um, about that because of Chandler. But we're also talking about that since community is community is just it won't. Die. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, the, the, let's let's separate them out. I mean, there was a great Hollywood Reporter cover story on Kyle Chandler, who just seems like just seems like a real still, a real G. Still is like one hundred emojis. Just 
he's like he just showing up to Texas. Austin bars in like in a pair of chinos doing like three tequila shots and then like going to his daughter's basketball game or something. Not just that, 90 degree Texas heat, yeah. the dry heat, pulling up to the bar at the Driscoll Hotel and asking for an oaky Cabernet. Yeah. Just like a, like a real chewy Something tannins, with like a little you know? bit of peat moss in it. Yeah, just like a, like, yeah, forest floor and blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, he says in this piece that he's the one who pulled the plug on the potential Friday Night Lights movie. Right. The... Now, apparently there was some interest that in Jason Kadams, who adapted the show for TV and ran the show, what was interested enough in the possibility that he wrote a script. And this is a movie of the TV show, so a movie that would continue the story of the TV show after the end of the, what was it, the 50s? With everybody in their different places, like so Coach and Tammy in Philadelphia? Well, but theoretically, they would have to be brought back together for some reason. Right. And, you know, as soon as you say that, it's it's not, I, it's just immediately not worth doing. Like, if, if, the, if a movie has to spend half of it getting the pieces back together, it's either not a movie or it's a Hobbit movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, 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 it's not a real thing that's of narrative interest. So, I would definitely watch Coach and Tammy do the dishes for 45 minutes, but I see what you're saying. It's a fair point. I would love to see them. I would love to see them together. (laughs) Uh, But apparently, Chandler was like, "This is a terrible idea. I don't want to do it," and that ended it. And I just wanted this whole thought that we're going to start talking about eventually, even though we're doing the dishes now, um, is that that's a great thing. Like we need to start accepting that we can leave well enough alone. And I'm starting. We're starting to see it on TV as we're moving towards finite stories, limited series, event series. and that's great from a creative standpoint because, you know, even a show I didn't really like, like True Detective, like, he could do his story beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Good or ill, like, that's the story you wanted to tell. Fargo was good for the same reasons. But we really need to start thinking about it also from an audience perspective because stories, good, the strongest stories aren't built to run forever. Right. And so... Right. Well, especially... Circle, your, your point about True Detective is especially a good one because something that you know... If you if you're if you're a fan of that show and you are honest with yourself, something that you know by episode four is that, and, and this is actually for as many as many problems as people have with True Detective. My problem was that I just always felt like Russ Cold needed to die. Like that was sort of his destiny was to yeah. confront that darkness and and not make it out. Like that that was what made sense for his character, and that it was almost as if he was so unbelievably popular and had become such like a a content factory on his own of like you know witticisms and like aphorisms yeah. and, and all this other stuff that he you know you can't kill rust you know what i mean like it's like killing han solo but it's, like in really terms of what he thought of the universe he needed to die you know what i mean and that was and so the fact that they got to that point at all at least considering it was great the fact that they didn't tease that out for another two or three seasons or crisscross time for another two or three seasons was the right thing to do that was the right thing to do, but that's really interesting the way you phrase that because I think you're right. The show was done when it aired, yeah. so it's not like they were responding to any fan interest in keeping the character alive. But when you – it does – that's one of the things that felt like a cop-out to me because you have the perfect setup where he could die. If the yeah. True Detective was yeah. an ongoing series, there's no way you kill your golden – Yeah, universe. and I don't think anybody's I mean, no like, way. I can't believe you killed – it's not like you're killing Sam on Cheers. It's like that's just that's the right. end Although, of the series. Although if True Detective was planning on running eight seasons, it would have been exactly like that. Right, exactly. But in, I think the problem with that was that, you know, I think that, that he, Pizzolatto, fell in love with his character a little bit too much, to be honest. I mean, I don't know his psychology. Well, all, I don't think but, it's uncommon in detective stories for the detective to live no matter what. But those detective stories are generally built on the presumption of further adventures. I mean, Sure, I, sure. Good point. That, that itself is an yeah. archetype that, that you know, when, but you're right. I mean, when I'm reading like a, a, a Raymond Chandler book or a James or a, Crumley or, novel where those guys experience some pretty traumatic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but always keep going. And yeah. that is, that is, you're right. In fiction, one of the essential character traits of the detective in caps is essentially immortality, that they can be punched forever right. and beaten up forever, but always or keep coming. Or in James Crumley's case, truth. have to dig their own grave while packing their broken nose with cocaine. <laughs> right. Which is what makes James Crumley the best crime writer of all time. <laughs> but that's a, that's a digression for another show, one that we will continue to return to or at least tease, but maybe never actually record. Um it came up in regards to Community, which I wrote about today, mm-hmm. because Community has been resurrected yet again. Um, it, it's beyond – I mean, you can't call it unlikely anymore because now that's almost the expectation that somehow this show will continue to survive. Yeah. Uh, Have NBC you, so you've seen pulled, episodes of the new season? Yeah. So uh, NBC finally pulled the plug on it after five seasons, and then Sony, the studio, 
who I've likened to uh, Ed Harris and uh, community is Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. I did in not the know Abyss. where you were going with that. I was like, and, uh, Ed Harris and, and, and you know the, in the rock. My favorite, like, <laughs> my, my favorite scene in the Abyss, and he's pounding on yeah, her chest. You yeah, know, and he yeah. brings her back to life. That's the way Sony is with with Community. Uh, they got Yahoo to buy it because Marissa Meyer has a lot of things going on, but like having money to burn is not not a problem. So it's essent- the sixth season is essentially their debut in the original scripted space. As okay. they call it. Yeah. Um, it's debuting tomorrow. We're recording Monday, so Tuesday, uh, with two episodes, and then there are 13 in total. I've seen two. Are they putting – what's the increments they're putting them up in? They're doing weekly. They're doing two tomorrow and then one a week. Hmm. Um, and it's fine. And here's the thing. Almost any sitcom in its sixth season, the best you can hope for is fine. I mean, yeah. you, you tune into the sitcoms because of the rhythms that are familiar to you and Absolutely. the characters you love. Right. What's interesting about seeing Community in this kind of late-stage decline is that it is a show that has always been so cognizant and aware of its own mechanisms. Yeah. Like, it, he, Dan Harmon intentionally short-circuited all, the, all the, the obvious tropes. So any, like, intramural romance or flirtation, he was like, that's garbage. We don't do that. Right. We will point out the flaws. We will talk about them. In the season six premiere, Abed is basically like, I feel like this is the end of what I call our show. Because we used to be a group of misfit students hanging out, and now we're like a loosely affiliated group of students and teachers who don't even take classes together anymore. What are we? And it's like, okay, well, that's very clever. You're talking about it. But by pointing out the cracks, you're really not helping anything. It's just still the cracks. I think that uh, there are two things that are going on here. That One thing is that obviously, like, usually what happens is these shows develop followings that exponentially increase after the show is over. So... You know, mm-hmm. even even something like Friends, which has been discovered by like untold generations of people in its life on Netflix, apparently, or Gilmore Girls in the same way, where it's like these shows that, you know, Friends was obviously a juggernaut, but Gilmore Girls was struggling while it was on. And if it, you know, half the people who watch it on Netflix now had watched it back then, it probably never would have been in danger of being canceled. Um, community is like that, where it's always sort of been treated like this endangered species, and its fans have treated it as such, like where it was very protective. Um, yes. When you get into that protective nature, you're not really thinking about what's best for the show. You're thinking about what's best for you, which is fine. That's right. You know, like that's uh, – if that's your relationship to television, that's totally fine because I have that relationship to some shows for sure. Um, but you wind up not think community is one of those strange sitcoms that actually could have been like True Detective. It could have been yeah. truly weird and ended. You know what I mean? Like it had some of that weirdness and some of those dark episodes and some of it, those weird plot lines that it could have just been like, yeah, and then the and then the school burns down. And that could have been the it, end, you know? But it kind of was. I mean, when yeah. Harmon's last episodes in season three, where everyone had a mental breakdown and Greendale was revealed to potentially be a psychotic institution where they were all being trapped and hallucinating a school, and then they sort of backed away from that, and then he was fired. Yeah. And then season four, which is now being referred to as a gas leak year, where two other people were brought in and made a weird ventriloquist dummy version of the show that was lousy could have ended then then Harmon came back triumphantly his first four episodes in season five were great yeah and then it kind of got bad and then the end of season five it was just felt like a giant shrug and it there was the end of season five was like a meteor is about to hit the school yeah so it did it was that and what's interesting to watch about community it's not just that the show kind of feels tired and they're pleasant moments and Keith David and Paget Brewster are on the show now and they're nice and good performers and it's fine yeah it's pretty clear that Dan Harmon, who is a very interesting personality and a very heart and everything else on his sleeve kind of storyteller, it seems he's not that interested in it anymore. You know, he, he is now chained to the machine that he was kind of raging against. And what's interesting to see is that in the first two episodes, the only thing in those two episodes that is totally crazy, totally unique, just shot through with the same energy that and the adrenaline. First, yeah, the second half of the first season ad, yeah. Is... A throwaway trailer gag for a Portuguese knockoff of Gremlins that is referenced as a joke earlier in the episode. Right. Well, that like goes back he to poured Harman's so much aesthetic. energy into right. making this. Right. Right. And he, the the articles about Harmon, you know, Papadimus wrote one a couple years ago. It's just his attention to detail and the things that he gets fixated on are what elevates it beyond just any other random. I mean, it's what makes it so that other people can't come in and run that show. It's like you have to have his particular genius to actually make a show like that. Um, talking more about Bloodline, though. Yeah. Oh, no, you well, want to jump in and say something about community? I did want to jump in with one other thing. It's interesting that we're talking about 
shows that have a story to tell and get out of there and shows that go on and on and on. I mean, generally, that's a divide between uh, sitcoms and dramas. Mm -hmm. Because a sitcom is generally, although that's changing now that sitcoms are just more serialized, and it certainly was the case with, like, Parks and Recreation, sitcoms generally didn't have a story to tell. There was a place, they were a place to yeah, hang out. Yeah, it was out. like a workplace thing, yeah. And so I'm thinking about dramas, and if, I, if I'm really going to hold fast to my new rule about, like, how it's okay to get canceled and sometimes one season is enough, I mean, I always hold up FX's show Terriers as my favorite show of the last few years. Mm -hmm. I wish it had run for a long time. It had one season. But here's what I'll say. Terriers told a great story in one season, and it ended really well, yeah. and it holds up on its own. It's okay that it – I'm okay with it. I'm at peace with it because the story that it was telling was there. I mean, it was, re, it was the kind of show that in many ways was going to be more like a sitcom and that you wanted to spend time with these characters as they got there up to adventures. There could have been countless cases they could have done, but yeah, I know what you mean. There wasn't one big thing, whereas the Americans, which we're not going to talk too much about because I know we know your feelings about it and I would like to keep our friendship steady. We already mentioned True Detective once and that's our trigger. <laughs> um, you know, the ratings for this third season, third season best yet, are lousy, mm -hmm. lousy. And John Landgraf, the head of FX, has said, and I kind of believe him, that it's going to run, he thinks it can run five seasons. And I think the more he says that, the more people making the show are like, okay, we have <laughs> five seasons, we better make good on it. Yeah. But if the Americans were to end after this season, I would be very upset because there is a story that they are telling. And it is definitely not going to be resolved at the end of the season in six weeks. Right, because it's like, it's like they haven't even gotten to like Kirby Puckett in the World Series yet. They haven't even gotten to the best part of the 80s. No, but like... it. it, it I mean, what, it's an interesting place to be with a show where I'm like, I, I want more of it, I want more of it. But with a show like The Americans, which is sort of built on a dare, and there are other shows like this too. Yeah. No, they're going to get mean. found out. Yeah. They're going to be found out. There's going to be something at the end where they are discovered, where one of them, where they, you know, where they, someone is killed or they defect or something. Like, terrible things are on the horizon um, and kind of both want to get there and kind of one over my eyes. It's, it's interesting the way we process the life cycle of these shows. Well, it's, it's, it's always okay as long as it's not your kid, right? So it's like we can talk tough when it comes to the shows that like we're like, hey, yeah. lighten up, community nerds. Why don't you guys let go? You know what I mean? But then it's when it's our shows or when it's like if, if you're like telling me like, I don't know, like if you had cut Justified off after season one, I would have been bummed out if you had – but it's also the other half of it that we're not even – that we're neglecting, which is like all the people who work on community – yeah. Or like, this is a pretty sweet job. It's yeah. fun. You know, like like um, Joel McHale, early guest on the Hollywood Perspectives yeah. podcast, yeah. by the way, um, loves the show. He loves being a part of the show. He is, you know, instrumental in keeping it alive and getting Dan Harmon back. And, you know, I, I bet if we, you know, we got a few drinks in him, sat down with him, he'd probably admit that maybe the scripts for season six aren't as good as the scripts for season three. But it's a great, apparently a great place to work. He works with his friends and it's fun. And so that's the other half of it. Like, there's, no, there's nothing inherently evil in continuing a show past its sell-by date if people are enjoying their jobs and it's pleasing some people. It's just that we, we also do expect – it's tough when you expect greatness from something when goodness is hard enough to do. Now, have you gotten a chance to see Bloodline at all? I'm just digging into it. Just digging into it. Just getting the, the Key West sand between, between your toes. You know, as I've said at this, at this table, this microphone – Love a Florida show. Love the look of it. Love the soft pastel. We were talking the other day. Greenwald's a big Florida guy. I love Florida. I think Florida is the weirdest, most interesting place in America. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, that's your it New Orleans. So <laughs> the fur okay, New Orleans is pretty great too. I well, but it, you know what, to be honest, I like Southern Florida and New Orleans for a lot of the same reasons, which you know, you can you can drink in public. Yeah. No. But <laughs> they both feel like these weird peninsulas jutting out from America that are not quite this country, that are deeply influenced by other countries and other cultures. And then particularly in Florida, and I kind of hope Bloodline picks up on this, although the vibe I have so far is that it's not. Like, there's a Florida that is this incredible vision of um, a hybrid culture of, of American and Cuban, Caribbean yeah. and Latin American and Haitian. And Somehow I get the impression that Sam Shepard is not the patriarch of a Cuban-American family, but cigar stranger dynasty. things have happened, yeah. I would rather see that, to be honest. But, but, there's, but then that version of Florida exists next to just, you know, the Florida man Twitter feed, you know, well, also, where, where I think just that kind this, of like a... It's, there's, there's the Elmer Leonard Florida too, right? Of, of yes. you know, U.S. Marshals and bandits kind of crisscrossing the state and hiding out and, and foreclosed upon condos and stuff and, you know... It, 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 it feels that's my That's my favorite Florida, yeah. Me too. I've been reading a lot of Elmer Leonard books recently. Just, 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 just closed off La Brava. I'm reading Bandits now. I mean, these, these are visions of 
of crime stories of America, of Florida that I, I love and I wish we could see more of on TV. For the second time, we're talking about Bloodline without actually talking about the show. So, I mean, maybe we should just table it for next yeah, week. Yeah, let's table it for next week because I'm sure I'll watch you, some you, of it this weekend. You're a, you were a damages guy, right? Loved These it. The guys who first made two it. seasons of damages are like first season, but like the first season, two seasons are like criminally underrated. My, my vibe that I've gotten from the show so far. Did you watch the first season I've of seen, Damages? I've seen the first season of Damages. That's crack. Well, th- that's what I've been saying. I think that they are these guys. What, what, I forget their names. Zellman like and uh, Kessler? ZKZ or something, yeah. like whatever they call themselves. They, they seem like a really, really good fit for Netflix yeah. in a way that a lot of the other people they've gone into business with maybe haven't been. Was the last season of Damages on Netflix? I think or it was Direct on DirecTV. DirecTV. I think they did one of those deals. But in the sense that. And this is the vibe I've gotten from the show and from people who've watched more episodes so far than I have. Um, it is that thing. Mm-hmm. They're doing that thing again where they are grabbing you and they're tying you in knots and it's all kind of a high wire act. And you immediately get the feeling that season three of the show might be awful. They got to get that Netflix buddy I, before the Duplasses take it all. Take it all. I know. I mean, I haven't. Anyway, I, I have not. I'm not officially putting an opinion out about. You know, the show when you drive right through, uh, you, you sort of take. You're taking the two in Los Angeles, and you're driving past uh, Eagle Rock. You can see the money coming out of the hills, <laughs> and Mark Duplass is just sitting there lighting thousand dollar bills on fire. And then he was just at South by Southwest giving a keynote, just being like, "You need to get. You need just to cake like with your me, friends, man." He's like, if you're tired of studio bosses dancing in your videos, you need to come. You need Shook to plus. That's amazing. Can you imagine? Like those guys are those guys are empire building. Yeah, for real. Yeah. I mean, I, we're joking about it, but Netflix. Not only did they make a deal with Netflix for what, like four to six movies, but and then they, then they sold, sold another, another one, one on top of it. Yeah. yeah. On top of that, and they're they're doing it together in a season two. Um. <sighs> They keep caking up. Yeah, man. Um, let's talk. Let's let's wrap things up with a quick conversation about uh, this Kendrick Lamar album. So much to the chagrin of bloggers everywhere to pimp a butterfly. Also, much to the chagrin of, of, of TDE CEO. You know, the TDE CEO is not pleased about that. Wait, really? So this was yeah, totally he was a like, I can't believe Interscope f***ed up our release. So what happened? So was I it, get the impression or? like possibly the clean version was accidentally up put up and, and when that became the case they had no choice but to put up the dirty version but that didn't i mean he was mad maybe it was maybe it's just mis- miscommunication but because the album was supposed to be released a week from tomorrow it was the 23rd right right, right. Yeah, and then so. it was suddenly last night and i didn't even know the way i knew that it was out was because my man chris ryan here sent an email to the grandland staff after i went to bed being like Hey, guess what? Yeah, <laughs> well, really? I, you know, I, so the funny thing hey, about guys. that, not to get inside of baseball, is that this is a very difficult record to talk about because we're used to now yes. being like, Drake leaked, my favorite song is Legend, but the secret best song is Star 67. You know what I mean? Like, And you have like this, your take is kind of fully formed upon its birth. This is going to be a very slow burner. I mean, this is a dense, dense record. Like last night we yes. saw our buddy John Caramonica tweeted out, the first Sara record, which he's referring to like this sort of Afrofuturist rap group from the mid 2000s being like an influence or like kind of the Kendrick record reminded him of it. It's very deeply dirty and funky and is not hook laden. And it is, it's going to take a second to get your, get your mind around it. Nothing, nothing about this project lends itself to the kind of take, the kind of facile take that it's going to get today, tomorrow, Wednesday. Um, it's another sign of why I think he's a really Kendrick is a really smart person and a very important artist because he's just not playing that game. He's he's going to lose the the battle in terms of the news cycle around his album release, but he was probably going to win the war. And I think the same thing happened with with Good Kid Mad Jarecki City. came into Kendrick's spot. <laughs> Jarecki, Jarecki stole his thunder. Jarecki got the Kendrick setting on his shaver. Like yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but honestly, every every other rapper is getting a note that says cadaver. Yeah, right. right because right. because you know he he is playing a much longer game now. If you want an instant hot take, I know you're going to say it's too jazzy. I will give you one, which is that if we, as a nation state, can like rescue people in war zones, if we can send a Black Hawk helicopter to take out the world's most wanted terrorist at night. Can't we do a similar thing to get Kendrick away from jazz musicians? 
Can we rescue him with the full arm and weight of the United States military industrial complex? See, you say that, Get but him in away two from weeks when Lotus. you're like institutionalized is the Magna Carta, like, who knows? You might be thanking your lucky stars for that. That's I know. Wave. I mean, it's I'm. I guess my feeling about it is this: I really admire the fact that this in no way sounds like a rap record released in 2015, in 2005, in 2010, 1995. Yeah, none of it. There, there are really no guests. I think Snoop shows up at one point. There's the the most credited guest is a jazz bassist named Thundercat. Yeah, like that's. I really, really admire all of that. That said. Admiration isn't the same as liking or loving. Right. It's and been like about twelve hours since it came out. So I mean, like, I I understand that it doesn't have a like running through my six with with run through the six with my woes moment, but or, it or might. a backseat it's freestyle. It's just buried moment. under some other stuff. What? But there isn't a backseat freestyle moment either. I no. think we can agree on that. No. Um, I think Black of the Berry is pretty cl- close to that though. Yeah, I guess you're right. Black of the Berry is is, 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 is and is an and it's interesting track. too because this record comes out now and you know a couple. of only like a few months ago, Black Messiah came out, and Black Messiah I prob- probably is a little bit more uh, is is a little bit more digestible than this record in some ways. But a lot of what I think you know, framed Black Messiah was stuff that was happening around Ferguson, and yeah. there was the sort a of surprise release, it. and it was like this is clearly a reaction to this. Whereas this record, everything from the like, did you guys mean to put this out today? To like, I don't know who any of these producers are except for Pharrell and like, or, you know, like people who are like, it's like Flying Lotus and Pharrell and Soundwave and, and, and Thundercat. Like that's, it's, it's just this dense record that's going to be need to pr- need to be processed on its own. And I, frankly, like I was, I've been like, I've been <laughs> talking about records my whole life and I've been reviewing them since I was like 20 years old. And, you know, I would even on some of the most pop easy to gra- digest mo- records I would never want to be held to what I said about in the first 12 hours so I'm just going to reserve judgment good on point I, I'm with you on that I support you're talking you to somebody that. who was I'm wrong sure. about college dropout because he got the wrong version of it or whatever but like I was wrong about college dropout yeah that's like one of my favorite records you know absolutely and I think that in good kid mad city I think it took almost a full year for me to fall in love with the entire record mm-hmm. I mean there were the tracks would start to bubble up and jump out and and I totally agree with you I, I just feel like and this is I'm going to say this on record so I can be mocked for it later and we can bring it up because I think we should revisit this record. I just think that Kendrick Lamar is so good at rapping. Yeah. I think he's one of the best people alive currently at rapping. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of an Andre 3000 situation where someone who is one of the best there is to do it is more interested in doing other things. Now, that's an, that's a kind of a specious argument because he's rapping all over this record. He's just he not doing it. Out of this record, yeah, yeah, he's just doing it in ways that aren't consistent with like I guess jumping on a a, a popular hook, or he's not doing, yeah. you know, it, it's not in ways that I was prepared to receive it, which is not an argument against its existence. Well, here's the thing: I want to have a conversation about it at some point because I think that we've, you and I, were probably of a generation of people who were heavily, heavily affected by that mid aughts mixtape era, where yeah. you got to start to be like. I just want to hear like you were all it was almost fan service. You yeah. could be like, I want to hear my favorite rapper rap over my favorite beat. And yep. it would happen. More often like every week. You're, every you're week totally G Unit right. would put out a mixtape and seem like that was like, here's the best beats and G Unit rapping over. Here's here's we got it for cheap part two. Here's dedication. Here's the drought. Here like here's the Jay-Z Reebok mixtape. You know what I mean? Like you it, didn't have to wait and hope that they picked the right producers. And so I think that in the last couple of years. It's been an adjustment almost to go back to like, okay, this guy's on his own vibe. Like this guy's gonna find his own voice. You're, that's such a good point because it it wasn't just fan service. It was just like fantasy it was, karaoke. It was basically. definitely it was exactly like that. Yeah, be, be, because you know there was a period ten years ago where like okay, so Interscope and Dre and everyone is putting all this money into the game. Who is kind of a mediocre rapper mm-hmm. who had his moments. So there would be a game track. He would get these Titanic beats, and we would literally say. I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear clips on that. Yeah, because it would or, happen. Or fifty doing hater to lover or whatever. Yeah, it it would all happen in, it, inevitably, and that is no longer the case. So I think that's I think that's a really good point. I think again, he's winning the long term war here. Like yeah. he's making albums that are considered and thoughtful and completely unique. That, as you know, that defeat what we're doing, which yeah. is probably good. I just want to see what younger people say about this record because I feel like they're less affected by like the. 
the the sea change that we experienced that went back and forth with that stuff. Because for all, like, as we went into that and as mixtapes grew out of an extension of being basically, like, you know, DJs taking an opportunity to record their showcasing of different artists and artists jockeying for placement on, like, who kid tapes or clue tapes or whatever, as it changed into these are our own distinct, discrete artistic statements and then flipped back to... Well, now that that's been corrupted, these are like kind of the, an extension of our retail brand. Like we've gone through all that. I think a lot of people who are like 23 right now are just like Kendrick's just the, shit. you know, Kendrick's just Jesus. Yeah, and and I think that I think that's a good point to make because it's what's also shifted is that that personal narrative is starting to outstrip radio play, for yeah, example, for because sure. you think about like J Cole, who I don't find that interesting or compelling as a rapper got no radio play at first for this record he put out last year and that record was the biggest selling debut of the year people love it sold people love like it people love like the same way that like and this is not uncommon this is not unlike when like in the 90s uh there would be these success stories like I, this is going to sound ridiculous but not unlike counting crows and hooting the blowfish who did a lot of college touring and dave matthews who did a lot of college touring and built up their own audiences and then would put out a major label record that would go platinum in the first week or like have these enormous hits or at least have a baseline of success that they could build off of. And people mm-hmm. would be like, where the hell did they come from? And it's like, they've just been playing South Carolina colleges for six years. But that's kind of like what happened with Wiz and Jay Cole those guys played a lot of yeah. shows and those guys like met the people and really built up actual fan bases. Yeah. And I, and I find, you know, I'm still, I listen to hot 97 every day. So I'm paying attention to that still as a barometer when really it's, it's not, possible for that to be a barometer of anything yeah. i mean hot 97 is mostly playing disclosures latch still which is a three-year-old british club track yeah like they they, they they don't have that narrative and so when i when i say that i don't know if there's like that moment that i'm looking for in the kendrick album the truth is that groundswell coming up from the bottom is going to push something on that record onto the radio whether it's black or the berry whether they finally get behind i or whatever that's going to change radio more than radio is going to change him if i don't, think, he, I don't think it matters to him like I that's think, what i'm I think saying he's like, you don't make a record like this if you care about that no, and I'm saying that's good. And so if that leaves us with a, a little more of a difficult conversation on yeah. our, our podcast the day after it comes out, that's that's fine. Let's revisit it next week after we've been able to digest it more. Next week? Let's revisit it in a month. Let's yeah. revisit it in a year. Let's put it in the time capsule. And, you know, <laughs> let's also make a little time for – I want to talk to you about my man Usher. Yeah, I had I a lot of deep Usher thoughts. All right, let's talk about Usher next week. It's been a, a thoughtful convo today. It's been thoughtful. It's been low-key. I feel like did we need some slapping? I think the slapping takes it up a notch, but I, I like just looking at you with your coffee cup and just this is this is like all things considered, man. People don't realize that I'm just staring at your forearms this whole time. <laughs> this is I thought this was a podcast, but it's a gun show. I had no uh, idea. All right, man. I'll see you next week. Great job, Baranski. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to Grantland.com and click on podcast.